0: In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The definition of ambivalent is to have mixed feelings and contradictory ideas about something or someone. And both mixed feelings and contradictory ideas describe our relationship. Time. The poet T.S. Eliot in his poetry explores the ambivalence towards the passing of time. And for instance, in his poem Little Gidding, which is the finale to his four quartets, he writes. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from, and we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. And so how do we live preparing for the future? And an even more problematic question is, how do we live while we are waiting in the face of that which is yet to become known to us? The readings for the first Sunday in Advent present in different ways the question, so how do we live in the present time with expectations that point us towards the future while our memories keep us prisoner of our past. Between the past and the future lies the uncertainties of the present time. As Eliot echoes... The past finds its echo in our expectations of the future. In the yet-to-become-known, we encounter the unresolved projections of that which may be only half-remembered. And that's the way the human mind works. It pattern-matches. Experience so that present experience and future expectations are strongly conditioned by the projections of the way we remember. Sometimes the memory is only half remembered, frequently, the memory appears to be forgotten and yet it still actively influences us. This is the process that Freud identified so clearly as the operation of the unconscious. And though the content of the unconscious maintains its power over our present and our future, Another way to think of this is that the unconscious mind is like a hard drive on a computer. We think we've erased something and we've tried to get rid of it. But because we no longer see it doesn't mean that it is no longer there. And it nevertheless is awaiting our unpleasant rediscovery of it when we least expect it. The season of Advent is the start of the church's year. And Advent is, for many of us, our most favorite season. Advent evokes, for me, a memory of all those new beginnings in my life. And I especially recall when, at the beginning of the new school year, I would open my new exercise book for the first time. I can see the pale green lines on the page, the thin red line designating the margin. And this is a memory of expectation as I survey the virgin page lying before me. My expectations are high for it has yet to be despoiled by the untidy handwriting and my multitudinous crossings out. A memory long forgotten, coming back to mind and coloring my expectations as I experience this season of Advent. And so, Advent is expectation. In the midst of the political and national turmoil Isaiah in our first reading this morning dreams of a time when the improbable will happen as part of the new messianic age Jerusalem no longer beleaguered and awaiting destruction will be raised up and will become a beacon to the nations and even a more improbable image. In his dream of warfare ending, the swords are beaten into plowshares uh, plow and the spears into pruning hooks. And he ends the chapter with an invitation. Come, house of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah has this dream. In the midst of a political situation, the Assyrians are at the gates of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah is about to fall. And in the midst of all that turmoil, Isaiah dreams of this future. It's a future dream that has yet to become fully realized. And yet because he dreams it, it becomes knowable. Although on the chronological level, Isaiah speaks to us out of the distant past, we hear his voice speaking directly to our own experience of the present. The context changes, and yet the challenges remain the same. We live in a time when to have a positive dream for our collective future feels like a forlorn hope we cannot afford. Instead, we feel we need to prepare for the worst as we survey the future where the post-World War II Pax Americana frays all around us. New and ominous forces both terrorist and nationalist rise to threaten our world order. The world order of Pax Americana has for seventy years preserved the stability and security of the world. However, It's a stability and security which was dictated very much on our own terms. In the face of apocalyptic visions of the future, the cohesion of the nation fractures. We argue over the best way to address our problems. More seriously still, we disagree about the nature of the very problems facing us. Some argue for budget reduction, while others advocate the urgent need to renew our vital infrastructures. We hotly contest among ourselves about the reality of global warming and the degradation of the world environment as natural disasters of epic proportion ravage the planet. And we argue about this even though it's plain to all that we are not insulated from the frightening power of nature as parts of our country are ravaged by flood and wind, fire and drought. We are witnessing a resurgence of institutional racism that many of us thought long dead and buried. Our unresolved yet forgotten past rises to haunt our present. And the economic disparities increase in alarming proportion. The prosperity of the many is sacrificed to the profits of the few. And a recent survey reported by PBS News reveals that 65% of Americans, both Republican and Democrat, favor the increase of the minimum wage to $10 an hour. Only 28% of those surveyed opposed this measure. And our own middle-class dreams of financial security evaporate before our eyes. And we are not only fearful for our children's futures, we are baffled and disquieted by the cynical indifference of our society as a whole to the future of our children as commitments to education and jobs for the young are abandoned in the face of economic expediency. And our political system becomes even more corrupted by the unfettered restraint on the financial influences of vested interests. As the conservative New York Times columnist David Shields noted recently, the problem for the political system is not the amount of money pouring in, but the lack of transparency so that we can't know who it is that is wielding undue influence. Over our politicians. So, Advent is a time of expectation, and expectation can be a fearful thing. Yet, Advent is also a time of preparation. So, what is the point, we might ask, of Advent's message of preparation in the face of our tendency to be so fearful about the yet to become known? And the readings for today all echo the common theme of the need to let our dreams of the future inform the way we live in the present. The present is where we live, sandwiched between the past and the future. We get on with living as well and as creatively as we can. The Apostle Paul reminds us, you know what time it is how it is now the moment for you to awake from sleep. And Jesus advocates that as in Noah's day, his disciples should go on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Images of getting on with normal life. Because the seeds of future hopes are planted in the ordinariness of the present. The present is also the place where we struggle with the past. Our half-remembered and forgotten memories project their power to dictate our future. To dream new dreams, we must first become aware and break the shackles of memory. And Isaiah's vision speaks to us down the ages because it is an, an invitation to walk in the light and not hide in the dark it is an invitation to not fear to not be afraid to dream the seeming impossible and advent is a time of things to come a time for preparing for things to come And it means that we have to have the audacity in the present time to plant the seeds that will one day mature into our future hope. And Advent means consciously rejecting the self-protective foreboding that results when we can only see our future through the prism of our past. And finally, Advent is a time of waiting. In my experience, waiting is the hardest thing of all. Yet the ability to courageously wait is the hallmark of our task in the present time. The great 20th century theologian Paul Tillich put it beautifully when he wrote, Although waiting is not having, it is also having. The fact that we wait for something shows that in some way we already possess it. Waiting, says Tillich, anticipates that which is not yet real. That is, if we wait in hope and patience, the power of that for which we wait is already effective within us. The power for that of that for which we wait is already effective within us. Those who wait, Tillich says, in an ultimate sense are not that far from that for which they wait. In another one of his poems from the Four Quartets, Eliot in East Coker writes that to hope is to is often going to be to hope for the wrong thing. To love will inevitably mean loving the wrong thing. And here Eliot understands the power of memory to dictate that the mind and the heart continue to recognize only what they already know. So is loving and hoping and believing a fruitless task? No, Eliot answers. For the faith and the love and the hope are realized only in the waiting. Amen.